You have probably heard the news. What news? The news that so many are walking away from Christianity. Especially in the West. Well, in many, art, in many other parts of the world, it's the opposite that is happening, by the way. Don't forget that. But here on our continent, and as you know, has had happened in Europe, many are walking away from the church and from the Lord. Why? Both my sermons today are preached in the light of that question. So uh, we will go through Mark's gospel and through Hebrews' letter, answering why is that happening. And um, therefore, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 1, the first eight verses of Mark. Uh, let's read the first 11 verses of Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he. Who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Then not really as our text. But as the probably the most important word in all Mark's gospel. Mark 10.45. <clears throat> Summarizing the entire gospel, Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many. This is the word of the Lord. 
Why are you a Christian? It's really necessary that we ask ourselves this basic question. Why am I a Christian? We should ask it. If so many are supposedly walking away from the Christian faith, we should ask this. Why do we believe? I am convinced in my heart that those who no longer go to church, no longer say they believe, did not know why they believed or even whom they believed in. Maybe they have some idea what they believed in terms of creedal statements. But why do you believe and whom do you believe in? If we cannot answer that clearly in our own minds and to the world, you and I are in danger too. So my purpose today from Mark is to show you why they believed, the early Christians, and whom they believed in. What was at the heart of their faith? It is something we may not miss. They stood in awe. They were astonished. They were flabbergasted. They marveled, you name it. By what? By the evidence, by what they saw and heard. And by God's grace, they came to the proper conclusions. Others tried to suppress the evidence. We'll hear about that. But they came to the conclusions and they said, he came from the Father. And we saw the glory of God in his only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. But before we go into Mark's gospel, I want to ask you a few more questions. Is it true that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder? In, in other words, it is a total subjective thing. I could give you many examples to show that is not true. Real beauty is not in the eyes of the beholder. Everyone will agree, every sane person There is nothing subjective about Christianity in that sense. Yes, there is a subjective side to it. By the way, I think you must be born a Hindu to think that Kali or Hanuman or one of their gods is adorable. I really think so. You have to be born like that. Or you have to be born a Muslim or be forced maybe at gunpoint to, to think that Allah lives. I think you have to be born uh, an indigenous person of North America to believe in the great spirit Wakantanka. I think you have to be brainwashed to be a communist or a really woke person or an evolutionist. I think you have to be brainwashed. But that's not where Christianity is. What a blessing to be raised in a Christian home, to be taught by your parents from early on the great works of God, 
and the gospel of our Lord. But please don't think we are just the products of culture or whatever, what have you. No, that's not true. Those things are important. Thank God for them, for a covenant home and community. Christianity is not a subjective thing. It's not a cultural thing in the first place. Those people in the beginnings of the Christian church marveled. They all marveled. Every single one. Old and young, friend and foe, religious and profane, Jew and Gentile. Every single one. I have another question for you. What will you answer a Muslim who asks you, where did Jesus ever say, I am God? If you read Mark's gospel, why don't you find Jesus saying, going around saying, I am God, worship me? How would you answer them? Do you know this is the most important thing that sets us apart from all other faiths, believing that he is God with us and the way and the truth and the life. And so let us go to the gospel of Mark. And I go very purposely to Mark because the critics like to say, Mark doesn't have such high language about Jesus as John, for instance, has. In Mark, Jesus looks a little bit more normal. Okay, let's go to Mark. So let us read it as if we read it for the first time. Imagine you were sitting in some great Roman city and Somebody arrived with a scroll, was hastily written. Apparently, an inmate by the name of Peter dictated it to his scribe, Mark. You've heard rumors, good and bad, of a mere 10, 20, 30 years ago that happened in Galilee and Judea. Now, suddenly, this scroll is going to connect all the dots. And so, somebody begins to read. You sit there in a villa and you listen attentively. And he begins to read in Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord of Yahweh. Prepare his way. It's about him that we are now going to hear. And so then we read on. And we see just as Jesus is baptized, he saw heaven, heaven being torn open. 
and the Holy Spirit is sending upon him in the form of a dove. Now that is literally the words of Isaiah pleading to God that he would tear the heavens and come down. And this is what is now happening. And this Jesus, after he was tempted in the wilderness, goes out to the lake where he finds Simon and Andrew fishing. And he calls them. And now you find a word that pops up everywhere in this gospel. The word immediately. Go and see how many times you find it there. Immediately they dropped their nets and they followed him. Same happens to the sons of Zebedee. They hear this man, this young man calling them. They leave their father and the boat and the nets and they follow him. And then he went to Capernaum on the Sabbath. Again to teach the people. And it says they were all amazed. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them with authority. They've never heard anything like this. And then there was a man with an evil spirit. And, and the man cried out, we know who you are, the son of God, the holy one of God rather. Have you come to destroy us? Who are the first to acknowledge him? The demons are the very first. And Jesus said, be silent, come out of him. And they were amazed because the demon came out immediately. If you know anything about exorcisms in other religions and so on, it's potions and lotions and incantations and I have very little effect. Here Jesus says a word and the man is free. Everyone was amazed. And then comes the first challenge. Not very directly, but indirectly. Jesus, or rather, I, I go a little bit back to the opening of chapter 2. And we see the first opposition rise. He, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at a home. And many gathered together so that there was no more room. You will see in the last verse of, of the first chapter, he went out and began to talk freely about it. That is the man who was de delivered, the leper. And, and the news spread so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town as he was about but he, he went to desolate places. So it's just to be alone a bit. That was after Jesus healed this leper. They've never seen anything like it. And now Jesus goes into a home. And it is so packed. Nobody could enter the door. And here are some guys. They open the roof of the house. They have a friend that they really love. And they're desperate for him. And they lower him before the Lord. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And there are some there in the crowd, in that house, who says, in their hearts, who say, who is he? Uh, they're actually arguing correctly. Only God can forgive sins. That is correct. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, said to them, so what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? What, what, what's the easiest one? 
in order that you may know. So he deals with him very kindly, very rationally, in order that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins on earth. I will now tell this man to take up your bed and walk. And Jesus did that. And the man walked. And it happened on the Sabbath, which they didn't like so much. And people were amazed and glorified God and said, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. Then he went out to the lake again. And a crowd was coming to him. He was going to teach them. But as he passed by, he saw a man really in, in the eyes of those folks, the scum of the earth. He was collaborating with the Romans. He was a Jew, but working with the Romans, ripping off his own people. He was a tax collector. And Jesus calls this man to follow him, Levi. And immediately he does the same. But Levi goes further. He throws a big party for Jesus with all his friends. And lo and behold, Jesus goes and eats and drinks with him. And now the opposition is a little bit clearer. Because they mumble. The scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, why does he eat with them? They don't understand this. They thought, we are set apart from those folks. We have written them off. And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now we begin to see why Jesus, what his mission is all about. And why he came into this world. Shortly after that, someone in the crowd asks, why are your disciples not fasting? Everyone else is fasting. John's disciples, the Pharisees. Why are your disciples not fasting? And you know what Jesus' answer is? How can they? The bridegroom is with them. You don't fast when the bridegroom is here. The wedding is about to start. Do you know why you can't follow the world and just do like everyone? No matter how big the pressure is. The bridegroom has come. That is the answer. A little, a little late, later, they walk through the grain fields, and his disciples are rubbing out grain. And again, the Pharisees, the elites from Jerusalem, don't like that too much. Now the, the confrontation is more direct. Look, they are doing what is not allowed on the Sabbath. But now look at Jesus' response. First, he defends his disciples. But then he asked them, have you never read? Wow. 
For these guys in the pound seats, they are the teachers of the law. Here is a man challenging them. Have you never read in your own Bible? And then Jesus says something over the top. The son of man. Or man was not made for the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was made for man. And then he says, and the son of man, which is Daniel's term for the Messiah, the son of man, is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, if there ever, ever was a, a, something given to Israel from God, it was the Sabbath. And this man says he is Lord of the Sabbath. And then in chapter 3, again we are in the synagogue, again in the, on the Sabbath. Now it seems Jesus is going on the offense a little bit. There is a man with a shriveled hand. Something like this. Something is wrong. And they're all there. This is no emergency. He could have been healed the day before. He could be healed the day later. And he sits there and the, the Jerusalem elites are in the, in the audience. And Jesus knew that. They're setting a trap for him. They're waiting on him to do something wrong. And Jesus calls this man out. Come stand here. And then he asks a question. Let me ask you a question. Is it good on the Sabbath to do good or evil? To save a life or to destroy a life? What is this guy talking about? He knows what is in their hearts. He has come to save a life. They have come to destroy a life. To destroy Jesus. That's why they are here. And so Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And he does it. And he's healed. And the Bible says they were furious. Meanwhile, Jesus withdrew to the lake and a large crowd followed him. All the time we read about the swelling crowd. 3 verse 8 or 7 Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon, Jerusalem, the surrounding country, Judea, south Idumea, on the other side of the river, by the Mediterranean Sea, up in Galilee, Ontario, New York, everywhere they came from. Everywhere. Is this something subjective? Oh, you have to be born in a Christian home. It came from everywhere. And again, we hear from the impure spirits. They say it again and again. You are the son of God. So now we have heard it from two sides. From God in heaven. You are my beloved son. And from hell. You are the son of God. 
And Jesus begins to pick out 12 men. He says, I want you and I want you and I want you and you and you to be my disciples. I'm going to train you. Jesus acts like a rabbi. That's what rabbis did. He had just turned 30. That was the age you had to be to be a rabbi. And his family, already a little bit nervous about the top guys from Jerusalem, his family is embarrassed. Why is he acting like this? And we see there in 3 verse 20 and 21. And he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went to seize him. They want to get him under control. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Why? Why did the Pharisees and scribes act the way they did? Why did these parents and brothers and sisters act the way they did? Well, they were embarrassed. What do we do this man? He's our brother. We know him. Who, do he, who does he think he is? And the, and the elites of Jerusalem felt threatened. They were jealous. He called them out. He revealed the hypocrisy of their hearts a little bit, not fully yet. It's also normal, right? That's what we are as human beings. And so we go on. It seems like the reaction of his family emboldens the people from Jerusalem, the VIPs, because they are now crossing a line. They need to find an explanation. Everyone is astonished. No one can deny what's happening. And so they say 3.22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And the prince of, by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. You see what they are doing? And by the way it didn't stop there. The Jews kept on doing that in history. The, the descendants of the Pharisees. They need to find an explanation. No one can deny what's happening. So let us say. He got his power. From the devil. Wow. That's how far they will go to suppress the truth. I once heard Richard Dawkins say in a debate with John Lennox, yes, when we stood at the Grand Canyon, you also get this feeling 
Did God not make it all? It's so awesome. But you have to deny those feelings. That's what Dawkins himself said. And that's what they are doing. And then Jesus responds. And you know, the Lord Jesus did not always respond to attacks like this. But here he does. Because it's a very, very serious charge. You are doing this by the prince of the power of the underworld. And Jesus uses pure logic to refute them. How can Satan drive out Satan? If I am of the dark side, then the devil's dominion is divided against itself because I am fighting against him. How can this work? Any kingdom, any church, any household divided against itself will fall. We know that. When there's division, we're about to fall. Doesn't make sense, my friends. Secondly, you have seen people delivered from the devil, haven't you? They are sound. They are healthy. They are sane. How can you deliver the captives of a strong man without first binding that strong man? Should you not ask who is binding the strong man and delivering his captives? That's what you should ask. So your solution makes zero sense. Illogical. And then Jesus issues his warning. Beware. Every sin will be forgiven man. But not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Don't suppress and deny the works of God in the world, in your heart, in salvation history. And keep on denying it. Beware of what you're doing. And that brings us to chapter 4. Jesus tells his first parable. Now he's not like a pastor... He's invited to preach in Strathroy or wherever. And he says, well, I have a lot of sermons. Which one will I do today? No. There is great purpose behind the Lord's sermon. His first parable, by the way. It's the sermon of the sower. What is it all about? Be careful how you hear. Be careful how you see. It's in the light of everything that happened. The seed fell on four different soils. And he quotes Isaiah. Because in the, in the days of Isaiah, they had eyes, eyes and ears. But they did not want to see. They did not want to hear. Because if they would only hear, they would understand. And if they would understand, they would turn. And if they would turn, God would heal them. See how relevant the first parable is and so are all the others. It's a response to everything that was happening. And he also tells him other stories. Don't hide what I have told you under a basket. You 
are the light of the world. And he tells his followers, which were only a few, don't worry. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. One of the smallest seeds around. But it will grow to become a mighty tree. And the birds of the air will nest in its branches. And then, to encourage his disciples even a little bit more, he takes them onto the lake in the boat to cross over on the, uh, to the other side. And a mighty storm came up on the Sea of Galilee. They were afraid. He was sleeping, just like Jonah of all. You remember Jonah sleeping? While there was such a mighty storm, everybody was afraid. They cried out, don't you care what's going on? That we are going to perish? But Jesus had that in mind. That's why he brought them here. And he stood up and he rebuked the winds and the waves. And everything became calm. And they said, who is this? Who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. And so it goes on and on. In chapter 5, the Lord delivers a man that is so broken, in such bad shape. You, he, is the, he is the example of what it means to be broken. You read about it. The demoniac. He delivers that man. It's incredible. With the word. They couldn't bind him. He's living among the tombs. He has all the marks of a demon possessed. And then Jesus explains. That no prophet is ever honored in his own backyard. And the psychologist will explain that to you. It's just a fact of life. And he sends out the twelve. To go and put into practice what they have learned. And then we hear News from the king's court from Herod. Because Herod beheaded John, the Lord's cousin, the forerunner who announced his coming. And now Herod is hearing all these stories from Galilee. And Herod is shivering. He is shaking like a reed. What is this? And the only explanation Herod has it is John whom I have beheaded. He's back. His conscience is tormenting him. And Jesus goes on. He is unfazed. He feeds 5,000. He walks underwater. And then there is another challenge. The watchdogs have caught up with him again. His disciples was, uh, eat with unwashed hands. Why don't they not follow the traditions? And Jesus exposes them. And then he has a very important lesson for his disciples. It's not what goes in that makes you unclean. But that which comes from the inside. 
That is where evil resides. It comes from the inside and defiles a person, whatever it might be. And now we understand the behavior also of those who rejected him. Jesus again feeds 4,000 with only seven loaves. And he calls on his disciples to trust in him. And then he warns them. He warns them against the slithering serpent. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of their attitude. Always skeptical. Nothing is good enough. Beware, my disciples. In any case, he takes them far up to the north and he asks them, we know what the people say about me. What do you say? Who am I? And I suggest that is the answer. That is the question that these millions who have walked away have never really answered. And every one of us must answer this. Who is this Jesus? This is nothing subjective I'm telling you. Nobody's been able to debunk the gospel These are facts. What is your answer? Who am I? When Peter gives the good good, good answer on behalf of everyone, Jesus tells him, I'm not the Messiah you might have expected. We're not going to drive the Romans out. All the Pharisees and the scribes, For evil will not be conquered by evil and by political or whatever mighty power. Evil shall only be conquered with good, with love. The Son of Man will be Accused and falsely charged and handed over to the Romans and they will nail him to a cross. And on the third day, he will rise again. And if you want to be my disciple, then that is the only way. Follow me. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. And follow me on this path. For I am the way and the truth. And the life. And then everything goes downhill fast. A little later. Especially after he cleansed the temple. A daring ray to do. And it goes downhill all the time. And he's taken out to the cross. 
And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the women who are still there with him thought, oh my, this is going wrong now. This is going wrong. Where are things going? But as he hangs there on the cross, a Roman centurion looking up said, truly, this is the Son of God. You've heard it from heaven. You've heard it from hell. You've heard it from Rome. You've heard it from his disciples. The Son of Man, said Jesus, did not come to be served. The rulers of this world and the rich and the famous, they want to be served. I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And then the women, they watch closely where he is buried in which tomb. And they go there on the first day of the new week. As they were accustomed to do. And they found the stone rolled away. And the angel says, he's not here. He's risen. Go and tell Peter and the others. He goes ahead of you to Galilee. And if you sat there in that Roman city hearing this scroll, I tell you up until this point, you know everything has changed. The world is no longer the same. And if you went outside, everything is different. The leaves on the tree, the sky, the rocks, people's faces, everything is different. And that great hangar door in front of you that was there all your life. Death has gone up. You can walk through. So why do you believe? Because you were brainwashed? Or because you couldn't deny what you heard has never been debunked by anyone, by any credible scholar. And that is why the disciples, when they wrote and preached in Acts and their letters, they said, call on the name of the Lord. The Lord is Jesus, and you will be saved. Whatever situation you're in, call on the name of the Lord. You can call on any name you want to. There are billions of names. Try them all. There's only one name that will help you and save you 
from your sins, from the crisis you're in, from your anxiety, from whatever. There's only one name. When I was in Uganda the last time, I have a dear friend who's been used by God mightily there in many Muslims coming to Christianity. Many. 10,000 so far in a decade or more, not only through his work, but he tells me there was a girl in the, synagogue, in the, in the mosque. She became possessed. She went into a catatonic state. She sat like, sat like this all the time. She wouldn't talk. She wouldn't eat. She wasn't like that. And the imams tried for six months. They asked money, by the way. And they tried everything. And because my friend, Reverend John Keishon, is kind of a well-known figure there, they asked him, in their desperation, maybe you can pray for her. And well, he's put on the spot. What do you do now? <laughs> it's a battle between the mosque and the church all the time there. Just before I went, 45 Christians were murdered not far from there. So he went there and he knew this was God's appointment. And he said to the girl, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And she was free in the name of Jesus. And he said to me, you can interview her. I say, no, I believe you. He's a man of integrity. This is the name. No other name shall be given unto man through whom you can be saved and forgiven and helped and whatever, whatever you need. No other name but the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord our God, we thank you for your word. And we praise you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Help each one of us to answer that question and to call on the name of the Lord for the first time and every time and again for all our needs. Oh God, preserve your people and let none of us here be a stumbling block to the little ones but rather be a great inspiration and encouragement to them. In Jesus' name. Amen.